I was born left-handed, and my grandmother thought that was uh, not a good sign. And so she turned me right-handed. So I write right-handed. Anything else I do left-handed, uh, golf, whatever. So I have a, a right-handed kit, but I lead with my left. You know, I need time to do a fill. I could never work a fill out. It comes in the emotion of the song. And so I could never double a fill. We put the track down and then, okay, double that fill. I could never do it because it just came off whenever it came off. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Eric Taros. I'm Alan Cozen. I'm Craig Bartak. Beatles, naked.
when I played Rain, it was the first time I sort of played that busy, and the last time I played that busy, I never sort of played like that again. You know, it's like a, one of those weird tracks. This show is about Ringo Starr and his drumming in the Beatles and a discussion as to whether he was the best drummer for the Beatles. 78 years young, still out on the road. It strikes me as incredibly odd because he looks fantastic for a guy his age who's been through what he's been through. And does it ever strike you as funny that here was the guy that had the sickly childhood had had a couple of brushes with death with, you know, in the 70s, you know, he's kind of rushed into hospital with some sort of abdominal issue. Uh, and yet here he is, like the picture of health, and he's still out there on the road. I mean, kind of strange. And he's got the best voice of the surviving Beatles. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. So sad. It, it's true, though. I mean, you know, it's sad, but true. Craig. Yes. Tell us what you think of Ringo as a drummer. If you were taking him, you know, removing him from the Beatles, that we know he's a famous Beatle. Right. But if you were just hearing Ringo for the first time, do you think you would clue into his greatness as a drummer? Would it stand out right away? Or is it something that you had to appreciate over the course of the Beatles' career? You know, it's both of those things. I have to say that um, one thing about Ringo and, and just musicians in particular, that's like the difference between, I feel, a session musician and somebody like Ringo is is that you hear him play and immediately you know it's him. And um, it's not always about proficiency. It's about about personality. And Ringo has a lot of personality in his drumming. And I think the, the Beatles were the perfect uh, vehicle for that. But, you know, you can listen to the solo stuff that he played on, you know, after the Beatles broke up. A lot of the uh, stuff he did with the other Beatles. And, and, and he just has a sound that's very unique. And um, in, it, he's a very unique drummer because his, his playing is very uplifting, even when he's playing um, ballads. It's a very rare quality. But if you saw Ringo playing in a club and you'd never heard of him before, do you think that he would get your attention, that you would say, wow, this guy's a cool drummer, he's different, he's got a different sound? Or is it really because of his Beatle association that we can appreciate him? I think it's really because of his Beatle association. But, I mean, that's that's so strong and so significant. It's like, it'd be like saying... Um, you know, like your favorite painter, your favorite Renaissance painter. You know, he has a style, and it's it's hard to take him out of that. It's he's so associated with it. Well, visually, he was quite an interesting drummer too. That that sort of strange, uh, left-handed but not left-handed. You know, the way he played and his movements were as idiosyncratic. I think, visually, when I say he, how he played, yeah. uh, as as Keith Moon. Yes. Or, you know, or Charlie Watts had that sort of wonderful, you know, Charlie Watts could have been the drummer in Sparks, you know, because he just had that sort of look, smirk on his right. face and kind of like looking around and half <laughs> interested and half not. And I think that's missing in a sense from a lot of drummers who are concentrating intently on what they're doing. I mean, I never thought Ansley Dunbar was a particularly interesting visual drummer, but he, I mean, fantastic session guy, but, you know, not, not anything to watch. The thing about the 60s in general is it's the great era for drummers in the sense that um, every drummer in those days had a very unique style. I mean, you can just listen to... I mean, they had to because there was a lot of... In the later 60s, there was a lot of power trios. And so you, the drummers had to have a personality of their own. You know, that whole thing sort of disappeared in the 
mid to late 70s when when disco came in and drummers were really forced to just play you know they played like their their eight you know they played their eight bars and put a little fill at the end of it and then um they they would they wouldn't actually write parts and um you you just listen to any of the drummers in the 60s and you listen to Ringo and his very unique style and you listen to Keith Moon the fact that he didn't have a hi-hat um he's just bashing on cymbals all the time and those crazy fills and and it worked for the who because Pete Town, the Who was a very different type of band in the sense that Pete Townsend was the rhythm section, and Entwistle and Keith Moon were the leads. They they actually played lead when you listen to their music. But you listen to Ginger Baker or any of these drummers, and they all have a very very unique style. You can just you can just tell who they are immediately with just the the drumming. I mean, apart from you know Keith Moon and you said Ginger Baker and the latter part of the sixties. If you look at the you know the old TV clips, whether it's you know Top of the Pops or Shindig, whatever, and you watch a lot of those drummers, they obviously had a far smaller kit than they would have today, and they had a much lighter touch, didn't they? They did, but not Ringo. Right. I mean, Ringo, Ringo really, really hit, and that's and that's the difference. If we want to get into a little bit of the difference between Pete Best and Ringo, um, I mean, when I listen to the two, uh, it's like it's a no-brainer because um, Pete Best is so. Even though you know the rumor has it he was so heavy with his bass drum and all that, I don't. And nothing of that seems to translate on any of their recordings, their early recordings. Right. The, the atom Best, beat. Yeah, I, 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 that's just to me that I don't hear that at all. Um, sorry, Pete, if you happen to be listening. Yeah. But um, it's like um, for, for, uh, as I can pound on my desk here. It's like to give you an example. Uh, Pete Best had a horrible backbeat, and, and that's the the if the song's in four four, it's the two and four. Like Pete Best would never accentuate the two. It'd be he play like. So his other beat would be louder, and Ringo would be. So his two and four would be really, really strong, and that just makes uh, that's that's everything to rock and roll. It just makes it drive. And you know, Pete Best, most of his fills would a lot of times would be on his on his snare. He'd never even get around to his toms. It'd always be like these little crush fills that just they just sounded wimpy compared to Ringo. And and I mean, you just God, I just watched that. DC video and I'm watching Ringo play and I'm just thinking how in the hell I mean he's obviously you know what 23 or however old he was back then but yeah it's just like I mean he's killing it on those drums I mean the drums are just like you watch the cymbal the cymbals rocking back and forth and um, and he's on that little platform that little round platform but he is hitting those drums so hard it's a miracle that he didn't break a drum here. I'm on a
Yeah, I mean, we've never seen Ringo as on fire as he was that night in D.C. But you can hear him on fire in some of the very early, very rare recordings from the 63 tour. It's one thing that really jumped out at me uh, when I reviewed the Bournemouth tape, for example, um, that was from the summer of 63, August of 63. Um, and, and I have some friends who, uh, Studio 2, if you're all out there listening, uh, who recreate the Beatles' early act every single night. And one of their insights after hearing that tape is they said to me, you can really hear how heavy Ringo had to play to get over those early, you know, fanatical crowds, but that in the studio, to, to them anyway, he sounded much softer, and that maybe that was part of the problem by the time they got back out in the last couple of tours, that he wasn't as playing with that ferocity, he was not playing with that ferocity and hitting as hard. But uh, it does bring a character to some of those live tapes, uh, you know, exactly you know, how heavy he was. Yeah, it's possible he had to be more constrained in the studio given EMI's uh, obsession about, you know, records not skipping and all of that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, who knows? But I, I, I agree that Washington tape is probably the best example of of how incredible a drummer Ringo was even that early. Um, and it is pretty much the only live videotape like that because when you get to the later tapes which are you know say japan in 66 and uh even shay in 65 um you know they're sort of i think beaten down enough by the touring experience and the standing there amidst screams experience that he's not entirely doing it anymore and he complained about uh how he you know he had to watch them because he couldn't hear them i mean just to see where they were they didn't have stage monitors all of that uh and 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 so those later films just don't really capture what he could do but washington really does um and that's just the early stuff you don't even really think of the early stuff is where Ringo was really shining. You think of rain, you think of tomorrow never knows, strawberry fields, most of pepper, that kind of thing. But um, he was actually doing interesting, actually compositional stuff from the start. I mean, you listen to She Loves You, that's pretty early. First thing you hear is the drums. Um, And the way he would sort of punctuate between phrases and... uh, other early things, you know, Ticket to Ride, Please Please Me. There's some great drumming on Please Please Me. Um, Tell Me Why, uh, Ticket to Ride. You know, he's adding something that's not just beating along with the song. He's listening to the vocal line. He's providing a, a kind of drum commentary. Um, so it's, it, it, it's always kind of astonishing when pe- people sort of shrug their shoulders at Ringo. And I think that that is largely because of the power trio thing that came really just at the end of the Beatles era. And suddenly there's, there's Ginger Baker and there's Mitch Mitchell and there's Keith Moon. And all of these guys are overtly showy drummers. And Ringo was never really a showy drummer. He was doing what was necessary for the song. And, you know, in terms of the longevity of the material, I think that's actually more important than being showy and virtuosic. Right. I I think Ringo suffers from a few things, right? The fact that he was the last to join the group and he did so Mm -hmm. on the eve of their fame. So first of all, you've got that narrative, what a lucky guy. You know, he just walked into it. 
and the fact that in the group itself, that in, in the films, he's the butt of their jokes often, okay? So I, I mm -hmm. think it all plays into that. And then, of course, the Pete Best Brigade, ignoring the fact that, you know, we're talking about his atom beat that seems to be absent from the recordings we have. Of course, his bass drum is even absent from some of those recordings. You know, <laughs> the ones in Germany, um, you know, in the studio with Bert Kempfert, where the engineer took away his bass pedal because he had no hand-foot coordination. The best story of the atom beat I ever heard um, came from Billy J. Kramer. And he was the one that, the way he explained it to me anyway, was that the way Pete played his tom, it reverberated in that sort of confined space that was the original Cavern Club and that it uh, he said it gave it real balls. He said you could really feel it, you know, in in your in your gut, you know, in the audience, and and so he actually, at least in that one conversation, said he preferred Pete, but only in the cavern, and, and he said that anywhere else, Ringo was was a better drummer. I mean, I agree with what Craig said. I think it's just a no brainer, personally. You know, th this whole thing that there are debates online as to who was the better drummer, I, I think it's ridiculous. Yeah, you know, it's it's not as if uh, okay, we don't have a huge amount of Pete Best on record, but we do have the entire deck audition. That's fifteen songs. Plus, we have another eight with Tony Sheridan. Plus, we have a handful of very early BBC recordings. So it's not as if we don't have anything to judge him on, you know? It's very it's very in the background, I think. It's, it certainly doesn't have what mm -hmm. Craig was saying in the way of personality or drive or, or power. You know, maybe one of the nicest comments at the beginning of Eight Days was, was McCartney telling that story of how it felt when Ringo, you know, was back there the first few times and that, that really they felt that finally the missing piece was there. I still remember that moment the first time Ringo played with us. Bang, he kicks in and it's like, and it was an oh my God moment. We're like, I remember looking and we're all looking at each other like, yeah, this is it. I'm getting very emotional. Ringo's got a swing to his playing. That's another thing I was going to mention because really the the best drummers they can put a um, they can put a swing into the beat and 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 hide it. So what you're doing is um, you're playing a straight rhythm, but you can put a shuffle into it. And um, like uh, uh, Bonham was so good at that. Um, like songs like Black Dog, for example. Um, the riff is really straight, but then when Bonham starts playing, he does with these little accents on his hi-hat and his snare and, he, and, and his kick, and he sort of indicates a swing. And Ringo did the exact same thing. Um, like, it, you know, you'd have to go back to the big band era, like, like people like Gene Krupa. They understood, you know, they understood the importance of swing as opposed to playing just a, a straight feel. Um, like a good example how Ringo could just switch gears as I call your name because it's straight and then all of a sudden it goes into that sort of ska swing sort of feel. Oh, I can't sleep at night But just the same
a lot of that and the early stuff with Ringo had to do with his hi-hat. He had a very unique way of playing his hi-hat. If you watch watch him play, he, he sort of goes back and forth. He sort of switches with the hi-hat. And what that causes is it's not straight eights that, that, that have the same exact velocity or impact, but it sort of like accentuates certain hi-hat um, um, hits. And it, it's fascinating to watch. He's the only drummer that actually did that. It's hard to actually hear, but it's really, really important to the feel of the song. Two, one, two, three. Oh yeah, I tell you something. I think you'll about earlier about how Ringo like even on, earlier on how he crafted his parts please please me with such a great example um, uh, but you know like she loves you he starts it off but more than that when he they start doing um, when they just say she loves you yeah 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 he's he's on his toms he's on his snare and his tom and then he doesn't um, doesn't go to his hi-hat um, until they they go, loves you, yeah, 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 and then he goes to the he goes to the hi hat, and that's brilliant because what it does is it adds attention to he he doesn't go right to the hi hat at the top of the song, and it adds this tension which is amazing, and then he goes back to the tom for those certain parts, and it's also he does it at the end of the song, and it's it's a very interesting precursor to what like new wave would have uh, turned out to be, and like you listen to songs like um. Pump It Up by Elvis Costello. And it's the same thing. It's like not giving the symbols away. Like you're holding back on the hi-hat and you're, you're, you're doing it at appropriate times. And it just adds this amazing um, tension to the songs. It's just great. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah. You know you should be glad You know 
drumming is that um, he Ticket to Ride is a really good example of this because people point that song out as like um, like the the actual beat now I, I've heard rumors that Paul kind of came up with the beat and, and all that but one thing that's uniquely Ringo is when he plays that song um, when he his second like it, it's it's kick snare and then he does his he does his mounted Tom but if you listen to it it's slightly late, yeah, and that's because he sort of he put, sort of leans into it with his shoulder, and that's a real Ringoism, and um, it's slightly late, and it adds this weird sort of tension to Ticket to Ride. So it's like that's why that verse always feels a little um, disjointed, but in the perfect way. One, two, three, four. Also demonstrates that in Tomorrow Never Knows, um, it's it's lopsided. The beat is a little lopsided, and that's a real hard thing to do. And he's intentionally doing it too, because that's this just the way he drums. Because that's what I was going to ask you actually is if you thought it was intentional. Oh, absolutely, because he does it the same way every time. It's not like it's not like a mistake. The best drummers, in my opinion, they seem they they hold back the beat. Some drummers, like, they really push the rhythm. Ringo had a way of, of, it's almost like he was saying, all right, lads, you know, let's sort of, like, let's hold back on this. Let's not, 
let's not push too much. And the the Beatles, like like the one of the great things about I Want to Hold Your Hand, I think that the American public sort of uh, keyed in on is the fact that that whole thing, all all four of them, are laying back on the beat. Do you think it was really a case of his own focus was different, that he was focused more on Phil right from the beginning as opposed to the technical side of things? I think he was focused on the feel, um, but one of the things, I, it pro- he probably played very different with Rory Storm than he did with the Beatles. At first, you can hear, like, one thing about er- the early Ringo, it's like on songs like Long Tall Sally. If you listen to that, I mean, he is fearless on that song. I mean, he's that's one of the differences between Pete Best and Ringo as well. I mean, Pete Best on the on the Deco auditions, he's holding back as he he's he's almost saying, well, you know, if if this audition doesn't get passed, I'm not going to be the one who's going to screw it up. I'm going to lay back. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it's not going to be because of the drums. Actually, it was partly, but, it, but you know, and Ringo steps in and he's just like on those early recordings. I mean, he's fearless. You can hear his bass drum just, just kicking through and, you know, and just the few mics they were using back in those days. Ringo really, really knew how to get, how to tune those drums. I mean, you listen to pretty much every, any Beatles song all the way through, all the way through their career, and his drums sound spectacular. I mean, still to this day, when I listen to Penny Lane and I listen to the snare drum on that, it's like, oh my God! You know, we compare that to, um, say, Heroes and Villains, which um, we have talked about in a previous podcast. Um, you know, it's just like Ringo snare is it's it's could be recorded could have been recorded yesterday. It just sounds amazing. He always knew how to tune his drums, and you know, and like like drummers like Ginger Baker, you know, if I ever meet Ginger Baker, I'll probably get beat up for this, but um, um, he'll probably hit me with his cane. But um, I was going to say he's um, getting older, Craig. I think he can outrun him. Okay, I hope so. Um, but, you know, it's like you listen to like um, like White Room or something like that, and, you know, what lets me down with him, his his drumming, is just his, his the sound of his drums. I mean, his, his snare drum, his bass drum sounds like a... Um, it sounds like a floor tom. It doesn't sound like a bass drum. Ringo's Ringo's snare and his bass drum and his hat, everything was always well-defined, and even in the early days. I mean, his snare just cuts right through, and just just brilliant the way his everything, all the way through. Even later when he started using tea towels on his drums and started to get that real muted sound. Yeah, another thing that George Martin pointed out to me was Ringo's creative use of percussion that he said, you know, he hadn't come upon that until the Beatles, and that Ringo was very, very creative. Yeah, percussion plays a huge, huge part in Beatles songs, especially the later part. Um, Lots and lots of tambourine, lots and lots of shakers, and they sort of come in at odd times. It's it's uh, a uh, it's it's and it's always interesting because I sometimes I listen for a pattern. Like I remember as a kid listening to Dear Prudence, and um, like. Um, I know that that's Paul playing that, but just it's a good example of like, you know, the tambourine. It's like sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. You know, one time, sometimes it's just hit once. It's like, you know, they were doing vocal overdubs and they were just holding something in their hand and they just kind of would throw it in at a certain time. But the percussion weighs, weighs, it has a lot to do with the feel of Beatles songs. Alan, when you were saying, you know, right from the start, you know, Ringo was different, he was unique, he was inventive. What are the examples that jump out from your perspective? Um, well, uh, please, please me 
for starters. I mean, there's a lot of interesting drumming going on in that. Uh, and I think we're distracted by other things. We're distracted by the vocal harmonies, um, the harmonica, all, all the, the sort of frontline stuff. But as you listen more closely to really a lot of these early songs, um, you hear an awful lot going on from Ringo. another one we've already mentioned i want to hold your hand and she loves you uh and long tall sally what about i feel fine yeah yeah there he's doing a lot with the the symbols and the hi-hat and uh it's you know the thing about ringo you you think of each of these songs and you think of what the drums are and it's always something different you know the the only occasion i can think of where his drumming sounds similar in one song to another for me is that um, that means a lot, which was a reject. Uh, the drumming sounds a lot like the drumming of Ticket to Ride. There's a little rolled thing going on uh, in between each line. And, uh, and, and I suspect that that's one of the reasons that, that that means a lot was sort of put on the reject pile because there was an element that was the same as another song from roughly the same period. And uh, maybe maybe that's also an indication that uh, among them, they were so uninspired by the song that that they didn't come up with something fresh to do, in, in, including Ringo. But, um, but, you know, it was just always something different. And uh, I think, you know, to you said something to Craig about whether uh, asking you asked him whether it was something he sort of uh, heard more of as, as time went on and, and came to appreciate more uh, with time. And, and that's definitely the case for me. I never really focused on the drums 
early in my uh, listening career, let's say. Uh, to me, the, the guitars and the bass and the vocals were the, the main events and the drums were there. And it, this, it, it could be an attitude I picked up as a kid in bands where the drummers were always the problem. <laughs> They still are. Ooh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, they they were always the guys who wanted to do the big drum solo in the middle of the acoustic ballad, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as I began listening, you know, more and more and more and more closely to, to these things, uh, Ringo really began to sort of, you know, stick out as, uh, you know, hey, there's something going on here that I just hadn't really focused on before. Um, and I think we're also hearing more of it now that Giles Martin is doing all of these remixes and the drums and the bass are being brought a bit more forward than they were on the original recordings. And I think Ringo's really benefiting from that. You know, I often think of Ringo as a certain brand of film director, you know, the kind who's not the Hitchcock who makes mm -hmm. his presence felt, but who's almost invisible. You don't even think about it. You're watching the film, you're loving the film. And you're not even, you know, thinking of the director's technique. And that's Ringo, okay? He's understated. And, yeah, he's not Keith Moon. I personally think, you know, Keith Moon's a wonderful drummer, very exciting, but he wouldn't have been right for the Beatles. Well, he had a lot of, if you went to Who gigs, you know, you could see a lot of time. you know, Pete would turn around and be saying something to Keith and then turn around again and say something. And I found out subsequently was like, Speed up your cunt. Slow down your cunt. You know, it was like he was not a great, not particularly a tremendous timekeeper, you know. But I, I would say one of my favorite Ringo performances is kind of an obscure one. Somewhere around Paul McCartney's 21st birthday, it was either on Easy Beat or it may have been on Saturday Club. They did a, a live studio, you know, live, I think it was like, you know, it's a BBC recording, but it was like in one of the theaters, probably in Manchester. And they do a version of Thank You, Girl, which is just one of my favorite Ringo performances. He does a drum solo without doing a drum solo. And he really, really brings that uh, to a higher level, that song. What do you mean by that? He does a drum solo without doing a drum solo? Listen to the end of the song. He just kicks it into gear. He, he lets you know what he's capable of without overstepping, without making it a drum solo. He just shows off his stuff.
fills he does there and with the precision and the heaviness. I mean, he is bashing away again. It's uh, since the crowd is smaller, you know, it's a it's a theater crowd. They're into it and they're they're excited by it. They can hear them react to Ringo. Um, I'm sure it was a great visual as well. It kind of would remind you of when they would do Long Tall Sally to close the shows in America. Ringo, there was an extra bit in there where Ringo would would kind of really bash at the drums and kind of go into the syncopated thing and the head would be going and would drive the kids wild. Subsequently on the 66 tour, when they closed the shows with Long Tall Sally, he didn't do any of that. They cut that out. It was just like, let's get out of here. But I think it's one of the opportunities to see Ringo really kind of do what he could do, but always within time, you know, not coming out of, not disrupting the uh, the rhythm of the song, but just, to me, it's really, really impressive. It's very understated, but it's, like I say, a solo without being a solo. But that's the double-edged sword, isn't it, with Ringo? It, you know, we were talking about why some people underestimate him as a drummer. It's because, on the one hand, yeah, he, he's so understated that it, there's no flash, he's not dominating, he's not the guy, you know, doing the flashy solo and pulling attention to himself, which is absolutely perfect for what he's doing. But unfortunately, you know, it's not drawing the attention towards him, and that's why a lot of people think, well, anyone could do what he was doing. It was a feature of their live set in 63, right as Beatlemania was starting, and it's so much more powerful in that sort of live setting than what they did in the studio. They just made it into, a, to use Lennon's words, into a piece of ice cream. I mentioned before, I feel fine. Paul himself has said, the drumming is what we used to think of as what I'd say drumming, sort of a Latin R&B that Ray Charles's drummer played on the original record. And we used to love it. One of the big clinching factors about Ringo as the drummer in the band was that he could really play that so well. Mm-hmm. It's adding that bossa nova. touring years, Craig, what are your favorite examples of Ringo's drumming? I don't mean on the road, I mean in the studio, but, you know, through, let's say, through Revolver. Um, well, the real early stuff, like um, I, we mentioned Please Please Me, how it's it's got all these different little sections. Can't Buy Me Love is like, man, he is just completely holding that song down. All the energy just comes from him. Um, 
and uh, you know, in the way he plays against um, um, against John's really crazy, hev- heavily syncopated guitar part in "All My Loving," is uh, really great. It's the '60s is the era for drummers writing um, parts. You know, it really truly is, and I, I don't think drummers up to that point really started to actually think of songs, you know, other than just holding down a backbeat. And I think Ringo was at the, really at the forefront of that. He walked a very fine line between being that dance drummer and showing off. I mean, you listen to the studio version of Long Tall Sally, and we're, meant, we're just talking about this, the, the, the last verse, and Ringo is just, he's just going crazy on that, and it's just, he doesn't miss a beat. He's just, it's perfect. It's just great. One of my favorite Ringo performances is You Can't Do That. And he's really, you had mentioned the, the kind of Motownish influence. I think that's one of the songs that, to me, it just jumps out at me as like, boy, this, this was kind of could have been a Motown record in a sense. And how did he switch into that? So, so it seems effortlessly. But he seems like a different drummer on that track, or am I just hearing well, something? Well, you know, he's really holding back. Like I said, that's, that song is, you know, that song is really electric and really exciting like um like i want to hold your hand and but yet he's really holding back on the beat and he's making the other beatles hold back as well and um so you get the energy from the song you get the energy from the vocals and the electric guitars then you get ringo holding back on that and that's what gives it that 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 r&b feel that is just so spectacular it's just such a hard thing to do. And fantastic use of a cowbell. I hate to bring the cowbell <laughs> thing is. up. But is there a greater Beatles cowbell performance than you can't do that? <laughs> Probably not. I've got something to say that might cause you pain. If I catch you talking to that boy again, I'm gonna let you down. Listen to me if you 
I just uh, really always admired how he would just would wouldn't be afraid to use the toms and um, I mean his floor tom, like we're talking about in like the intro of "She Loves You," and um, and because you know a lot of times you know they weren't mic'd separately. You know he just he just had a few mics on his kit, but that's that's another testament to just his ability to to play hard, you know, with his um, to, with his right hand on that floor tom and be able to make it cut through. Oh, speaking of cut through and, and speaking of Motown, how about the Swedish radio version of "You Really Got a Hold on Me"? Um, it, he's he's the star of that one with Lennon's voice. And we'd like to carry on with a number by an American group called The Miracles. It's called "You Really Got a Hold on Me." <laughs>
So, Alan, what do you hear in Ringo's drumming in terms of the evolution as the 60s progress and as more and more heavyweight drummers are coming on the scene, right? You know, rock music is evolving and in many ways it's becoming more skilled and more virtuoso performers. Right. And how, how do you hear Ringo evolving along with um, that? I hear Ringo evolving pretty much in the same way the rest of them were evolving, you know? I mean you couldn't be Pete Best and be at the session for Strawberry Fields and do what he did. You had to be someone who really had kind of an inventive approach to what drums were in his kit, how to use them, and then what other drums, you know, whether other percussion instruments might be interesting too, which I think McCartney had some input onto as well. Um, I think they both played timpani on that. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it became more overtly compositional um, where all through Pepper, I mean, you listen to Pepper pretty much start to finish and every song, well, obviously, except for Within You, Without You, which he's not on, uh, every song that he is on, there is a completely different approach and it suits the song perfectly. And it's full of, if you start focusing on the drumming, it's just full of um, interesting touches that that punctuate the vocal lines and almost kind of comment on them. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's not just holding down the beat. It's which which is what you know when you you, you see these quotes from George and and Paul about how he could hold down the beat steadily for you know all day, and and that's true. But um, as they got more and more complex, I, I'd say starting from Revolver onward, uh, you know, he's just coming up with stuff that's pretty much off the chart in terms of pop hits, just like they were. You know, he was he was keeping up with Lennon and McCartney uh, as songwriters uh, very closely. He doesn't get credit for that, but those songs wouldn't be the same without the drumming he brought to them. Right. I mean, I was thinking of like a mm -hmm. day in the life with those right. Tom fills, which w would you agree they're a combination of the predictable and the unpredictable? I see the unpredictable parts. I'm not sure what's, yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm not sure whether it's so much now that they're predictable as I think of them now as that we've heard them so many times that they kind of belong there. It's part of the mental picture of those songs. He blew his mind out in a car He didn't notice that the lights had changed A crowd of people stood and stared They'd seen his face before Nobody was really sure he was on the house Maybe predictable isn't as good a word as inevitable. 
Right. You know, because there are certain things, certain of those those fills in a day in the life that are absolutely natural. You 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 couldn't think of you know well why didn't he do this instead? It, it, you know what he did fits perfectly and it has that inevitability and maybe that maybe that in a way seems predictable but uh, i'm not sure it necessarily is I'm, I'm not sure that if you put a different drummer in there the same thing would have happened craig do you feel that there's a particular album where ringo suddenly steps up his game i don't think there's necessarily um one album because I just it's to me Ringo is just a, this logical progression with the Beatles where they all just kind of went up a level um, every single time um, I don't think that there's a jump where you just go aha that's you know Ringo's coming into his own because for the early Beatles he came into his own just right away and um, it just seems to be that he just uh, just kept suit with them all the way I mean you know on the White Album uh, you know, with that incredible eclectic array of material coming from you know Lennon, McCartney, oh yeah, and and, and lesser extent Harrison, great demands are placed on Ringo, I think. Uh, you know, and I, I something that comes to mind for me is a track like Long, Long, Long. Yeah. Well, I, I just think he's so creative, and again, it's so understated. Well, Long, Long, Long is like a day in the life in the sense that when I always think of Ringo on those type of songs, I think of a symphony, going to a symphony, and you see this, uh, you know, you see the percussion section back there, you know, you, and you see that they're used, the parts are actually written, and it's like, this is where, he, this is where the, um, the timpani comes in, this is where the cymbal comes in, and Ringo's not playing drums like a traditional drummer, and I think that's the one thing that's unconventional about A Day in the Life and also like Long, Long, Long. He's thinking, it like, he's thinking of it like a symphony in the sense that I'm going to hold off right here, and then this is the part where the little, you know, where the drums come in, and I'm going to build, and I'm thinking of this song like a symphonic piece. Does that make him very different to the drummers that you've worked with? Oh yeah, I mean, drummers just really don't do that anymore, and they—it's—it's it's a lost art. You know, we were talking about how drummers really wrote parts in the '60s. I mean, like a, a really good non-Ringo example of this is like for for some reason a few years ago, everybody's heard the song "Happy Together" by the Turtles a million times, but. Uh, uh, John Barbada, the drummer in that, if you, next time you listen to Happy Together, listen to the drums and listen to how hooky the drums are. It's not, he's not just playing a beat. He's um, actually, had have com he's composed this drum part and he's constantly changing it up. 
and and adding these incredible things. And I directly attribute that to Ringo's contribution to the 60s, where drummers were, they were trying to come up with little hooks and not just holding down the beat. Um, like Come Together and, and, and Ticket to Ride and a lot of these songs, like um, Revolution and um, Ringo is just, he's really just writing something very unique to that song as opposed to just playing a set, you know, like a set 2-4 drum beat or 4-4 drum beat. Alan, what about the changing kits? I mean, you know, Ringo has said that by the time of Abbey Road, he thought his playing on there was like Tom Tom Madness. I think that was his quote. And that, that yeah. was when he had the kit with the calfskin drum heads. I mean, mm -hmm. do, do you hear changes in his sound based on the kits? Um, I'm not sure I listen to drums in quite that way. Uh, although, you know, obviously if he's, you know, he, he had made these changes in his kit and was attracted himself to the sound of those toms, he's going to use them more or find more ways to use them. But, um, it's not something I particularly noticed. Um, I did have a, since you've mentioned Abbey Road though, I mean, Abbey Road and, birthday uh side two of abbey road and birthday are the only places where he takes anything like a drum solo right and it is you could describe it as subtle or understated or not much or <laughs> why do you think um i'd be interested in what everyone thinks about why he just did something so straightforward uh, you know, on those two occasions when the spotlight really was on him. I heard, well, from from him, that he hated drum solos. He didn't like right. the idea of a drum solo. That's mm. would probably be the easiest. So he was coerced into doing it at least one of those times and just said, okay, well, I'll, I'll do this. <laughs> now on to the next. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you say like, you know, Abbey Road, the end. And his drum solo there, I mean, for me always, it was kind of, it sounded bog standard. consider to be a solo per se i mean you know actually when i was a kid it always kind of reminded me of uh in a god of vita you know it's that <laughs> it's that it's the same type of thing um and it's like you're keeping you're keeping rhythm with your kick drum kick drums going you know on the eights and then you're just sort of doing things on your top you know it's Ringo was a dance drummer. It was he is a dance drummer, and um, and that's that's just like you can just see if they were playing that at at a dance, people would just keep dancing. They would just keep going with it. They would know, probably face the stage, but you know it's not unlike some of the things that Gene Krupa would do too. He would do those same type of things. You know, in in uh, he would do the same type of thing with the toms. So. Um, 
not really a solo. I don't consider it to be. I mean, it's so it's a solo in the Ringo world that we're talking about, but not in a traditional world. Right. I mean, here comes the sun. He mentioned that. Uh, you know about all the 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 time changes. He plays eleven eight four four seven eight. And then he's got what he described as funny fills in the bridge. He comes into me because he'd been to India again, I think. He said, oh, I've got this song, it's like seven and a half time. Yeah, so, you know, he might as well have talked to me in Arabic, you know what I mean? <laughs> Here comes the sun, Here comes the sun, I say it's all right. And that's how I come off. I had to find some way uh, that I could physically do it and do it every time so it came off on the time. That's one of those Indian tricks. I had no way of going, yeah, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one. It's not my brain. So as long as I go, okay, that's seven, good, got it. He's listening to the guitar and he's listening to what George is doing on the acoustic and he's listening to the riff and he's interpreting that to drums. He's not sitting there and he's not charting it out, um, which is what I think what some of the best drummers do and the best musicians do. That's a really good example. Ringo famously uh, says all the time in interviews that he never practiced, ever. Mm -hmm. So that his idea of learning drums and playing drums and practicing, in a sense, was up on stage. Do you think that had something to do with him having a unique sound? And do you think, had he been a guy that practiced... Would that have changed his approach, his creativity? What we, what we have of Ringo and what we love about Ringo is the fact that he didn't practice was probably a really smart thing because if he did practice, he could have started wanting to be more like Ginger Baker or some of these drummers that are in the forefront and um, and, and and possibly overplayed. So i'm 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 glad he stuck with his guns and 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 did that because it does create a certain sort of sound and it and you know it's that lazy feel that he has you know and the other interesting thing about Ringo as a drummer it's like we mentioned rain earlier in the podcast he had this way of playing over the um over to the next bar he would con- he would con- uh start playing a fill and then he would keep it going and then he wouldn't go back to the one and go back to the beat he'd still be playing a fill and he does that in rain he does it in like good morning good morning and a few other examples and it's like it's it's pretty insane now that's the type of thing that keith moon famously did he would just kind of play right over the downbeat you know like so you'd be coming into the you know from a bridge into a chorus or something like that you'd you'd be most drummers would land right on that downbeat on the chorus and go back to the beat as opposed to playing, continue their fill going right through it. And Ringo did that on a number of occasions and it's really fascinating. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Going to work, don't wanna go, feeling low down. Heading for home, you start to roam, then you're in town. Everybody knows there's nothing doing Everything is closed, it's like a ruin Everyone you see is half asleep And you're on your own, you're in the street After a while you start to smile Now you feel cool Then you decide to take a walk by the old school Nothing has changed, it's still the same I've got 
to that shuffle beat with the hi-hat going really fast. Um, it's, it's a pretty fascinating drum part. Um, you know, the thing is with Rain is a lot of people say that that's their favorite drum um, beat, but it's it's really, it's kind of interesting the fact that they did record it at a faster speed and then slowed it down because that does affect the sound of the drums and the way he played it. So it's kind of, it's, that's why I never say Rain is my favorite drum track because it's been manipulated and so it's if it just feels like that like a song more like Good Morning Good Morning or, or another one that really really shows his energy. Well that is you could also say that about all of the production where they just there's so much compression on his drums. Oh yeah. And you know so how much of that is affecting you know it is a tough call because I thought about that earlier saying well geez you know Using those old, what do they call them, valve, old valve compressors, and and just squashing the drums, yeah, they were f- and it has a cool effect, you know. And how much of that was Ringo, and how much of that was Jeff Emmerich, or whatever? I don't know. Well, Ringo had a very live-sounding kit. I mean, it 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 played out completely different in later when he was using a T towel on his drums, and he just had a really just a really dull-sounding um, kit. But those Fairchild um, compressors that they were using—that was the ones. Yeah, Fairchild, Fairchild compressors are—they are, sound incredible, and um, they do have a lot to do with the sound of Ringo's drums, especially you know, obviously Jeff Emmerich from Jeff Emmerich on, because he was the one who was really compressor crazy and just really had no problem with just turning that dial all the way to eleven. What about the fact that in the studio, as Ringo himself has said numerous times? For him, it consisted of a lot of sitting around while the others were routining the songs. And so he was like playing cards or whatever he had to do. But then he, when he was called upon, you know, he was expected to perform right away, and he did. And as Mark Lewison said when he was listening to all the session tapes at EMI, it was rare, if ever, that a take broke down because of Ringo. Right, right. Well, I think you're ta- I, those sitting around... Uh, that seemed to be the stories connected mostly with Pepper because of the way they made it. And I think for all their earlier records, they were kind of in and out. They weren't they weren't given the luxury of a lot of time like they had with Pepper to just keep things going. Well, I, I think actually once we hit Revolver and then Pepper in the studio years, that becomes more prevalent. Yeah, I think they were, but they were, weren't they under greater... Uh, restrictions to get Revolver out. I mean, what they started it the first week of April and it was done in May or something. Right. So, I mean, it's not like this thing that dragged out over six months. Right, but but my question was, Craig, you know, is that a particularly difficult thing to do or is that standard for drummers in the studio? Where they, basically, you know, they have to wait and then when they're called upon, they have to do the business. Well, that is true, but um, now Ringo, while he was waiting, he I'm sure he had to be you know, had to have one ear open to what was going on because as these songs, even in the earlier, when they were starting to spend more time in the studio and start to reimagine these songs, um, 
he had to, you know, they would change the feels pretty dramatically. I mean, like, um, I'll be back or, um, I'm only sleeping from the earlier versions. They were completely different. So he has to pretty much be aware and be formulating what he's going to be playing, even while he's sitting around like playing pool or playing cards. Also, at the beginning of the of the work on each song, wouldn't he have done at least some sort of rudimentary drum track, um, you know, as, as, as part of the first takes? Because I don't, I don't think they use click tracks in those well, days. You mean like a, gu- a guide track? So no, I think he probably did That's... a basic drum track. They continued working. He would have been, as Craig said, listening for you know what he could do. And so by the time he came back, I mean he, he to to do the finished drumming, you know he had the basis of the song anyway. And and then whatever ideas had occurred to him while listening to the others layering on all their stuff. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, a really good example of what you just said is um, if you look at the Let It Be, if you watch the Let It Be movie and you listen to or watch the Twickenham um, part, you know, he's just like um, like two of us. He's just laying down a rudimentary drum beat, and it, it turned out to be where there were no real drums at all. It's just he's just very playing very lightly on his um, on his kick drum, mostly. Um, so he's, he... he definitely was giving the guys a backbeat and he was the click track and 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 he was shaping as they were shaping yeah are there any examples for you where you wish Ringo had done something different each of you here um in terms of you listen to it and think well you know you could have been more flamboyant here a bit more expansive or whatever oh well he certainly didn't do much on you know my name look up the number Right. And thanks to Jeff Lynne, he didn't do much on Free as a Bird. Yeah. You know, uh, funny you say that. I, I do think there's some Ringo personality. I know, unfortunately, it's got the Jeff Lynne sort of gated sound or whatever that yeah. production technique is. But I can hear Ringo's personality in Free as a Bird. You know, he always wants the click track. He wants the click, and I keep saying, I am the fucking click. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as to the question, was Ringo the best drummer for the Beatles, can any of you think of other drummers who, again, I know this is hypothetical, but who you think style-wise, ego-wise, would have fit in well with the group? Jim Keltner, maybe? Keltner had the lazy feel. Did you say that in a positive way or negative? Oh, I'm saying it in a positive way. Keltner was is probably the only drummer that I can think of that can do a like a, a standard 4-4, like a standard beat and, and still have that lazy snare drum and make it work right and as far as far as other drummers about the only thing I, the only other drummer i could possibly think of would be charlie watts yes because charlie watts later on had to orchestrate parts and um he also you know it, it's funny because when i watch charlie watts play drums it always makes me a little nervous because he um he has this unique playing style where he lifts up his he doesn't play the hi-hat when he plays his snare drum. So he gets, that's why his snare drum always sounds so good. So he he lifts up his hand and, and neglects to play the hi-hat when he plays the snare drum mostly on the two and four. But it always looks like he's not going to make it. It almost looks like he's like with his left hand when he's playing the snare that he's never going to come down on the beat, but he always does. And it always... If it's like every, it's like watching like a murder mystery to me. It's like, is he going to make it? Is he going to get through? Yeah. Is he going to get out of the attic? <laughs> so each of you, 
what would be the one Beatles recording that if you had to play to someone to illustrate Ringo's greatness as a drummer, which track would you choose? In a studio setting, I guess it would have to be Rain, and in a live setting, I think it would be either uh, Long Tall Sally from Washington or that aforementioned uh, Thank You Girl from BBC Radio. Okay, for me it would be probably Tomorrow Never Knows on Revolver or Strawberry Fields for the, in the studio. Um, I agree with Long Tall Sally from Washington, but since that's taken, I'd go with Roll Over Beethoven at the other end of the set. Yeah. When you said, you know, Tomorrow Never Knows and Strawberry Fields, what about them? They are such sort of heavy well thought through percussion parts i mean they are for one thing they're ringo kind of really putting himself out there uh it's clear in tomorrow never knows i mean the 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 drumming is we think of the loops and we think of the you know spacey vocal sound and everything but the the drums are a good 50 percent of that song i think um, and in Strawberry Fields, they're obviously not quite as prominent, but there's uh, they're, they're, they're so much uh, going on and so many changes happening in the drum parts that, uh, that I think that, that stands out unusually uh, for Ringo. I mean, it's, it's <coughs> as, as you say, the, these are the tracks that I would pick to sort of persuade someone who wasn't persuaded that Ringo was a good drummer that he actually was for energy I'll, I'd have to say revolution just because of just how bombastic those drums are and for finesse definitely day in the life um, and I agree with everybody um, long tall Sally live was spectacular yeah I, I would share that opinion and also uh, all the choices that you made and I would throw in long mm -hmm. long long and also, Here Comes the Sun, I think, you know, it's just oh. iconic. So what should we play out with? Uh, well, since it is uh, such a summery tune, why not Here Comes the Sun? Two, three, four.
by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow. Bye. 